This is the day the Lord has made, and we rejoice and we're glad in it. I love it where the church family, you know, in the past I've had people personally complain to me about the time of greeting the right hand of fellowship. Uh, some people think it just breaks up the flow of the service. It's just, you know, just avoid that, you know, I just, I don't like it. While others say, you know, right hand of fellowship, in some countries they give the holy kiss at that time. And, you know, I say, well, that's a different culture, different time, different place. But uh, I just love the... Uh, just the love shown and the, uh, you can always feel the emotional uh, temperature of our group go up when we're able to touch base and, and share our love for one another. So, and it allows the kids to make their way downstairs. I set up to grade four. Some of the kids pounced on that because it's really up to grade three. And, uh, but uh, yeah, I'll get it right someday. <laughs> Friends, uh, we are in a, a brief series of messages on the gospel the gospel, the evangel. As we saw in Greek, the euangelion, which is the good news. Gospel, of course, is from that old um, English word, old English from the Middle Ages, God's spell, which means good news. And that's literally what it is. I think sometimes calling it gospel, an old word that really we know it's like gospel music, it's gospels, uh, the four books in the New Testament. We, we kind of lose sight of what it actually is. It's so good. It's great news. As we saw those instances from history, those, those evangel moments is when the good news arrives. And this isn't just good news. Hey, today, you know, the, 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 the special is uh, cream of broccoli soup. We know you love that. That's good news. No, no, it's far beyond that. This is great news. This is news that I once was lost, but now I'm found, that wonderful hymn of amazing grace. And we know a Newton story behind it, that he was once an inveterate sinner, a, a slave trader, uh, traded in humans like property. And he himself was uh, cast away, was marooned. And in Africa, he was taken as a slave himself. Talk about what goes around comes around, God teaching a lesson the hard way. And he was chained and he was a slave himself. And in the midst of all of that, God got hold of him. And he who thought of himself as a sinner far beyond God's ability to forgive experienced the good news. The good news. As we saw in Sunday school, that my sinful history is not bigger than God. That his grace, his forgiveness is greater than all our sin. And that amazing grace, that good news, the good news of salvation, of deliverance, of a miraculous escape came to pass. And sometimes we kind of downplay that. You know, we talk about the gospel and we don't seem to be overjoyed, excited, or amazed by it. It becomes something that we're used to. It's old hat. If we're not careful, we take it for granted. But as we look closely into not only what the gospel is, what's so good about the good news, but all of the areas of our lives that it impacts and touches, it continues to bless and amaze. This morning, as I said, our theme hymn was the old Newton hymn from uh, uh, 1796, I believe it was published in the only hymnal years ago. The hymn book with Amazing Grace in it the first time sells for millions of dollars now. It was an early book printed in the printing press. It's an amazing thing. Now it's considered Amazing Grace by far, by far the most beloved hymn in the English language. And yet grace, sometimes we, just like the good news, sometimes grace kind of slips away from us. 
But this morning, as we focus on the grace of the good news, last week, as you remember, last week we talked about before you can understand or make any sense of the good news, you have to know the bad news. Before you could hear a doctor's diagnosis and treatment, you would have to understand that you were ill. Otherwise, it would make no sense. You would reject it outright. And many times, because we reject the bad news that we're sinners lost in our sins, separated from a holy God, if we skip the bad news, we miss the good news completely. Remember in the midst of that message, the most familiar of passages, part of the old Romans road, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin is how we earn our death. We earn our wages. Something we earn. Separation from God. Spiritually, physically, we die. The wages of sin is death. But of course, the second half of that verse brings us to today. That's the bad news followed by the deliverance of the good news. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God. The gift that's grace. That's grace. In the original language, in Greek language, you know, I've known many ladies named Grace over the years. It's one of those names that have fallen out of favor for many years. If many times, if you'd hear a name, you would picture in your mind a woman of a certain maturity. We'll put it that way, a nice way. You know, if, if you, you meet and you hear, oh, we're going to go see Ethel. You don't think of a young girl with turned out to the nines. You think of I think of Ethel Mertz from the old I Love Lucy show, you know, somebody a little older, you know, Ethel. Well, Grace, I've known a number. I went to school with a Grace, shows how old I am. She's now an older woman named Grace, but I've known many people named Grace, and it's one of those beautiful Bible names like Grace and Joy. But Grace is based on the Greek word charis, which is interesting because charis, Grace, is the name of whose sister? Caleb's sister's name, Charis. I love that. They take the Greek name for grace. But the interesting thing about that word is it's the same word. They don't have a separate word for gift. It's the same word. The gift is Charis. The act of giving the gift, the attitude of love, selflessness behind the giving of the gift is Charis. It's all grace. Like Charles Haddon Spurgeon's famous little book, all of grace. It's all of grace, our lives and our salvation. The the definition of grace, as you look into the dictionary, there's three basic definitions. The exercise of love, kindness, or goodwill, disposition to benefit or to serve another. See, that's the, the love and the attitude behind the gift. The second definition is close to what we talk about today. The divine favor toward man. God's grace, the undeserved kindness or forgiveness of God, divine love or pardon. And the one when somebody is graceful or you see a beautiful uh, horse or animal in nature, that's beauty, physical, intellectual, or moral, easy elegance of manners, perfection of form, beautiful grace. Those are the English uses of the word. But the one for us today is much closer, though the first definition is behind the giving, loving heart. That's obviously God's heart. But the the, the useful definition that I'm going to use today, as you see, is that grace is God's 
unmerited favor and blessing through Christ, freely extended to people who deserve his wrath. Unmerited means we don't deserve it, but what we do deserve is God's wrath, separation from God, the wages of sin which we have earned, death, God's unmerited grace. Grace is graciously given. Kind of go together, many things. And I want to look today about that amazing grace. Just focus on it briefly this morning. God's amazing grace. The song unpacked a lot of that for us as we sang it together, including many of the verses that often are left out for the sake of time. They all have a wonderful lesson for us. But the first thing we want to look at today is that God graciously saves us. And that's what we often think of grace, almost completely, the grace extended to us in salvation. Jesus taking our place. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, but the grace of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ. That's our salvation. He is our grace. You know, we often, when we talk about being saved by grace through faith, our minds immediately go to Ephesians chapter 2. But sometimes we leave out the context of it. And I think the context of God's gracious act of salvation, that saving grace, we forget one of the reasons for it. It's so that throughout eternity, and we don't know what eternity is going to hold. Sometimes we think eternity is going to be pretty much now written in large letters. It's going to extend and extend. It's going to be good, streets of gold, heaven, but it's just going to stay the same. The Bible says, ear has not heard, eye hasn't seen, mind has not conceived of all that God has for us in eternity. God will be creative and active. All things will be new. It's going to be amazing. We don't know what amazing being celestial that we'll see, but we will play a role in all of that. You will be forever an example of God's grace, the people of the Lamb. We will for all ages be cause for others to glorify God. And, you know, when you think of the history of the earth, the number of people that at the end of the day will be saved by God's grace through Jesus, compared to the infinite multitudes of eternity, that might not be a great number. And yet, it is the ultimate example of God's grace. That's the message given to us in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at that passage beginning in verse 4. It says, but because of his great love, it's the attitude behind the gift. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Here it is, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. For all the ages, you will be in Christ. You will be the people of the Lamb. You will be those saved on Easter Sunday. You will have a name that sets you apart from all beings as one who's experienced the grace of Jesus. You once were lost, but now you're found. That's not just for today. This grace will mark you for all eternity. And that's amazing. His amazing, saving grace graciously saves us. But you know, for today, the grace has an impact for us. It not only moves us from categories. You know, you look at uh, categories. You move from one to the other, this and that. No, it changes us. It impacts us every day as we interact with God. Our intimacy, our relationship with God, in our devotional time, in our prayer, in the reading and feeding on God's Word, and being guided by His Spirit, every bit of it has grace to it. Remember that quote from Charles Spurgeon last week that... that uh, Everything we do in this life, this fallen world, every molecule is marred by sin. Well, for us going forward, everything has the mark of grace to it. It is all flavored by God's grace. And part of that is he teaches us. He teaches us lessons by his grace. He changes us by his grace. God graciously teaches us. It's not just hearing from. It's also looking toward. You know, there's an old saying, and Proverbs become old sayings because they're generally true. What speaks, or what speaks louder than words? Actions. The grace of Jesus, meditating on his love for you, shown in his passion and his death on the cross, that teaches you changes you. You see the price he was willing to pay because he graciously loved you. He put himself in your place, paid the price you couldn't pay, redeemed you, bought you at a great price. Salvation by grace is free to you. It's a gift. You can't pay for it. Religion doesn't earn it. Good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. It's all of grace all of grace. And yet, looking at the price he paid, it teaches us that the way we'd lived, we couldn't do it any longer. Keep your eyes on the cross. The author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Wherever you're at in life, look to Jesus. It will teach you I remember the Apostle Paul as he was writing to Titus. Titus, who was on the Isle of Crete, and the people in the Isle of Crete were notorious for being stubborn, pig-headed sinners. And so Titus had his words or his work cut out for him, rather. The Apostle Paul writes to him and says, they are all caught up on trying to be good when they're by nature sinners. And Paul tells Titus... <coughs> Paul tells Titus, the antidote to all of this is grace. You have to to model grace for them. You have to teach grace to them. You have to point them to Jesus so they absorb grace. And 
Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us. Did you get that? The grace of God teaches us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's amazing. How does the grace teach you? You look at what Jesus has done for you, and the momentary pleasure of sin comes along. And Jesus, sacrifice for you, teaches you to say no. I have something better. My life has a different purpose. And to have that purpose in my life, the one who loved me gave himself for me. God's grace teaches you sometimes to say no. It's like the old anti-drug campaign during the Reagan era, just say no. Well, sometimes grace is the greatest thing to help us do that. I've known people who have to remind themselves constantly, as we all do, I've known a man who carried a a nail in his pocket at all time. He wouldn't leave without it. And whenever he was tempted to pursue something that was beneath our calling as the people of God who've been saved by grace, he would reach into his pocket and he would touch that nail to remind him of the nails that hung Jesus on a tree. Just thinking of the grace, the grace. In Galatians Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, familiar passage, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. You see what he's doing? He's looking to the grace the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He graced me. He saved me by grace. And by looking at that, Paul says it allows him to live a life that's pleasing to God. The grace teaches us. He loved me. Oh, he loved me. I'm not going to disappoint him. I'm not going to live beneath that love. I'm not going to turn my heart away from him. I'm going to respond to his gift of love with my own love. And that love is what drives us and motivates us. It impels us. God graciously motivates us. His grace motivates us. You know, I see people who are givers, not just financially, but of their time, of their self, of their gifts. Those are people who understand what they've received. They have been graced themselves. They have been blessed. They've been blessed and they become a blessing. They're like Barnabas, son of encouragement. Oh, he was so blessed. He was willing to give away everything for his love of Christ. He was motivated. And motivation, when you think of motivation, it's that which drives you to action. You have to have a motivation. Why do you get up so many times during the day and do all that work and prepare meals and eat them? Well, your hunger motivates you. Survival motivates you. What gets some people out of bed in the morning? Maybe it's a bad motivation. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's selfishness. In fact, those are the driving motivations of a fallen world. But what should motivate son or daughter of God? 
God's grace. It's his grace motivates us. It's the motivating factor. Some of you husbands may say, well, what drives me to action? Well, I married my motivation. Many of us can say that, you know. It's a quiet Saturday. You're a prisoner of inertia. And somebody who loves you motivates you. They remind you of all those things that need to get done. Then if you don't do them, they lovingly remind you again and until finally your motivation kicks in and you go do them. Well, that's from the outside in, isn't it? But this is from the inside out. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, all that he did for you and who he is and how valued you are by him. You have to completely block that out to live a selfish life. His motivation is primary. In Matthew chapter 6, or chapter 10 rather, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out the 12. That's the context. And as he's giving them their marching orders, he tells them a motivation, a motivational thing. He gives them what to do, but why they do it. He's telling them as he's sending them out, he says, as you go, preach the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And they could have just said, okay, off you go. But then he tells them why they're doing it. Freely you have received, freely give. You who have received, give to others. Pay it forward, pass it on. People whose lives are marked by grace truly who understand that become gracious people themselves. They reflect God's great, gracious, giving heart. It's like that thing that happens in Tim Horton's drive-thrus. You pull up to pay for your order and they tell you the person in front of you paid for yours. And you say, well, I'm going to pay for the one behind me. And it goes on and on. I've heard how many times the record that these have gone up to. I've never experienced it. Down deep, you're always sure that around the corner in the drive-thru, you're going to say, well, I'm going to pay the bill of the one behind me. And then it's amazing that that football team bus fit through the drive-in and, and they hand you the bill. And the lady in front of you paid, you know, buck twenty-five for your medium coffee. You know, you're okay. I had to pay so much more than I received. Not that way with Jesus. It's not that way with Jesus. The grace that we give to others is not a patch on what we've received. We can't outgive God. He's given you everything. He's given you his life, his love, forgiveness, joy, the ability to live above your circumstances. If we had all of this and no heaven, it would be worth it. But he's given you eternity with him and purpose. So much grace. Pass it on. Be a giver of grace to others. That motivates us. And finally, as we close, you live a life with a gracious God. It will change you. God graciously transforms us. And I love the word for transformation in Scripture, metamorpho. It's where we get metamorphosis. It's anything that changes figuratively or literally from one form to another. God finds us as sinners. 
essentially selfish people. We don't know any other way. That's who we are. We're broken. We can't be anything else but sinful, selfish, lost people. But over time, patiently, by His Word, by His Spirit, with the example of our brothers and sisters around us, He transforms us. We become more like Jesus. All of us are being transformed into the image of Jesus. Unlike some of the false teachers, we don't become gods ourselves, but our hearts begin to beat with the heartbeat of Jesus. We see others, and we look through their sin, and we see their need behind it, and our hearts go out to them, and we extend grace, and we share the good news. Romans chapter 12 With this in mind, Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. This is what he says it's for. Keeping your eyes on the grace of God, in view of God's mercy, here's what it does. When you do it, this is the transformation. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, perfect, and pleasing will. Because you've kept your eyes on God's grace. You've been changed by His grace and mercy, and you're able to understand Him better. Following His footsteps more faithfully, you are being transformed in the shadow of the cross. Finally, grow in it. It's not something you achieve overnight, and it's something you never finish. The Greek tenses, because Greek in Greek, it kind of throws students off because in English, it's all about the word order, subject, predicate, everything. We know a lot from the word order. In Greek, the word order is secondary. The words all have endings that tell us how they're to be understood. The verbs all have tenses, which drives young students around the bend. But in Second Peter chapter 3, we're told that this is a process that we are to be part of continuously. It's the final verse of Peter's letter, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow in grace. Continue to grow in grace. Be more gracious tomorrow than you were today. How to do that? Because you're saved by grace. We're taught by the example of God's grace. We're transformed by His grace. We share His grace. Grow in it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, at the heart of the good news, following the, the verdict, following the terminal diagnosis, the wages of sin is death, and that there's none righteous, no, not one. Following that, the good news breaks through. Like lightning from a clear sky, Lord, you tell us we're saved. Not by anything we can do, even the faith believe in that grace as a gift from you works 
It's not of works. No one can boast. Father, I pray that we will be a people of grace, saved by it, transformed by it. And Lord, that we will grow in our grace and knowledge of Jesus. Lord, we can know a lot about Jesus, but to truly know his heart, we have to grow in his grace. Lord, may this be your work in us. We trust you for it. We give ourselves to it. Now dismiss us from this place of worship and study and fellowship out to a world that needs us, that needs the good news. Send us to our mission fields, whether they be across the sea at the Dominican Republic or across the street. Lord, send us with your grace and blessing to bless others. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and keep you.